Welcome, everyone, once again to Harsh Truths Podcast. I am your host, Roman Leva. I want to thank you all for your uh, continued patience as these episodes uh, are sporadic at best. Uh, I always say that uh, it seems like the introduction of every episode that we're going to be getting more consistent. Uh, we're going to get on a regular schedule. And uh, honestly, I don't know if, if or when that ever will happen. Uh, I don't want to sound discouraged here, but um, life gets in the way. And uh, I'm hoping that perhaps the summer and the warmer weather will uh, provide me with uh, with some impetus to uh, live up to the expectations that I've tried to set uh, with with you, the audience. So, um, you know, again, apologies for the delay. And uh, I'm really excited to get this episode uploaded kind of at the last minute. Uh, my guest today is Stefan uh, from Breaking the Will and Josted New Forces, uh, and this was recorded uh, back in February at the end of a little weekend tour that Breaking the Will and Playing Weather did together, and we had the idea at that time that we should probably tour again since we had such a great time, and lo and behold, uh, this is going to be going up on Monday, May 28th, that's Memorial Day here in the United States. And we are going to be starting our tour uh, as uh, Slit Throats, that's myself, Josted, and Scant. Uh, We're going to be going to Dayton, Grand Rapids, Michigan, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Minneapolis, Minnesota, Chicago, Illinois, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and Brooklyn, New York. That's uh, starting this Monday, May 28th, 2018. Uh, If you need any more information on the shows, I'm sure you can uh, find that on social media. Uh, I'll be up posting regular updates from the uh, Twitter page that I have and also Instagram, both are uh, at Plague Mother, so uh, feel free to check it out. Rather than get into uh, too long of a rant here, I'll just uh, once again say uh, thanks for checking out the podcast, uh, and uh, I'll catch you on the uh, tail end of this episode. just introduce yourself yeah so my name is stefan Aoni. i run the new forces label and i have a few projects the main of which are breaking the will Stad, and action discipline which is a duo with brad griggs um you're currently living in ithaca new york but you're originally from minnesota, minnesota. twin cities yeah cool did you grow up there your whole life yeah i did do you remember your first experience with noise music <sighs> i don't remember a specific moment um so I was into punk and hardcore in middle and school and high school, probably much like many of the people that have been interviewed on this podcast. Uh, and I had, but I had friends that were really into the sort of like booming indie rock thing that was happening in the early 2000s. Okay. Um, and as people probably know, some of the stuff like Wolf Eyes and Prurient was getting some play in that world. And so I had friends that knew of stuff like Wolf Eyes or Yellow Swans, some of those more prominent, uh, relatively speaking, noise acts. <laughs> So in high school, I checked out a few things like Purient and Wolf Eyes, and it was kind of cool, just sort of an extremity for extremity's sake kind of thing. I didn't really 
listen to it regularly, but it was kind of a fun thing to have on your iPod or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the moment it really started becoming an obsession was, and I actually wrote about this in the most recent issue of my zine, I saw The Endless Blockade and SFN, a couple of grind bands. I forget what year it was, um, but it was in a Minneapolis basement. And one of the openers was this group called Juyo, who I had no idea who they were. It was these two guys, and they loaded up two tables filled to the brim with stuff that I had no idea what it was. And now I know that it was quote-unquote noise gear, but it just looked like alien instruments as far as I knew. Right. So they get up in front of the crowd, and they each counted down on one of those uh, kitchen timers to like sync themselves up. And then they just did something I'd never seen before for 30 minutes, and it was the most amazing experience. It was loud. It was weird. It wasn't punk music. Uh, but it wasn't sort of like avant-garde or experimental in an academic sense. Like I played piano and cello growing up and it wasn't anything like that. It was just its own thing. Um, so after I saw them, I checked out some of their stuff and they each had labels and they're connected to bastard noise. And then it really started to snowball from there. Um, and then I started buying stuff from more of the Minneapolis labels. So in 2008, 2009, that was when Minneapolis was really active. You had like phage tapes, uh, Joe Barra's label, uh, Small Doses. Oscar Brumel was doing Wince. Grant Richardson was doing Nod. There was Icefold, This Throne Agony, Dolores Dewberry. Too many to name. I'm missing people. Seth Ryan. Uh, and they're often Minneapolis No Shows. And so I started to go into those. I started buying a lot of stuff from Phage Tapes. Sam Stokes was incredibly generous with time and releases, showing me stuff, and it kind of got completely out of control from there. So you you played cello and piano as a, as yeah, a kid? Yeah, like growing up, I really played... young, or...? I played piano really young, and okay. quit that in high school, and I played cello through high school. Okay, so growing up, where, like, the music was kind of, like, around, like... Music was everywhere. I mean, I've got multiple family members that are choir and orchestra directors. My mom taught piano lessons. That was her job. Okay. So music was everywhere, but, you know, nothing... No, there's so no, no sort of avant-garde sensibility, and I definitely discovered punk and hardcore completely on my own. Right. That that was going to be my next question. Is is do you recall when you found punk and hardcore? Because because that does seem to be a, especially for people like in our our age range, uh, that kind of seems to be the access point for just going off into into different ex, extreme music forms. You know, I think. You know, for some, for a few of the people that are a little bit older than us, they had like the flipper '90s noise rock kind of thing, right? Or like death metal in the '90s. Yeah, yeah. Right. And whereas for us, it seems like it's it's punk and hardcore. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Yeah, I mean, you know, so my father's a Lutheran pastor, so when I was quite a bit younger and getting into music, you kind of had to do the Christian thing for a while, and so sort of inevitably, as we've talked about, I found Christian punk and Christian hardcore, which is probably making some people laugh right now, but at the time, it was awesome. And then, you know, out of that, you start to get into, quote-unquote, real hardcore and punk. Um, And, yeah, that all happened on my own. But probably, I mean, definitely by high school, punk and hardcore was sort of the center of my interests, aside from sports. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) They're kind of all-consuming if you really... I, if it really touches you, it's sort yeah, of... Yeah, they, and they are. And, but, the, I mean, the thing about me is that I unfortunately missed that sort of, like, doing hardcore with your friends thing in high school because mm. I was the only person in my high school that had any sort of interest in this stuff. So I was kind of doing it on my own, which was a bummer. And it wasn't until college that I was around other people that were into things like records and going to shows and things like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so with your father as a pastor, your family's 
fairly religious, I'd take it, or... Uh, I mean, they're religious people. Uh, he's Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, and basically what that means is it's relatively liberal as far as evangelical denominations go. And so, went to church on Sunday, but it wasn't overbearing, and the fact that I'm not particularly involved anymore... I'm sure they're not stoked about it, but it's not something that's brought up or is like a black mark in the family. It's, okay. and, and, and they're also very interested, even though they don't get it, in the sort of weird musical tangent I've gone off on. Sure, sure. Yeah. Well, that's cool. To, like, So a lot of times in, in situations where the family is more involved around their faith, it, it can be a whoever, de- the kid that departs is usually the kid that Right, gets... so thankfully that's not my situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's good. You got into, you were getting into in noise music kind of towards the end of high school, seems like? or was Casually this, at the end of high yeah. school, and then it wasn't until college that going to shows and buying every cassette I could get my hands on happened. When did you, when did you first start making your own noise, or when did that even, when did that thought even pop up? I mean, I'm certainly not the first person to say this, but I feel like once I'd been listening to it for a while... I sort of realized that it was almost the expectation that eventually you would just do it yourself. Yeah. Um, and I, I mean, I don't think I even questioned that. It was like, oh, eventually I'm going to like buy a pedal and try to do this. Yeah. Uh, and so I think I just did. And, you know, I, f- I forget exactly the timeline, but again, Sam, the guy that does phage tapes gets a lot of credit because I think he knew and encouraged me to get a pedal or two. And he said, okay, here's a deal. I'm going to do a tape for you. And then you're going to play this show. So figure it out, which is great, right? I mean, yeah. you know, I I have a lot of respect for people that sort of emerge fully formed as noise geniuses, but I think most people, the process is fits and starts and figuring it out sure. and getting put on a show and being like, okay, well, I got to figure out something to do now because I've got a show. Totally. And that was my situation. Um, so this, I think the first show is probably 2010 as Breaking the Will, and it was a fundraiser for one of the Minneapolis Noise Fests. That was probably the spring of 2010, and that was around the same time I started the label. I think the first New Forces batch probably came out summer 2010, um, and it was myself as Breaking the Will, I think my second tape, her third tape, and then tapes by Being, Kafar, and Baculum, mm-hmm. all three of whom remain close noise friends and have gone on to bigger and better things since then, so... It's pretty great as far as the first batch goes. And all three of those guys played that Minneapolis Noise Fest. So I, I probably saw Being and saw Kafar and said, okay, I need these guys in my first batch. And I already knew Sam, of course. So so with Breaking the Will, at least the uh, common perception, I think, is that it's a kind of, a, in a way, a political project, at least the imagery that's yeah often used. Was that kind of intentional going in the beginning? or, or, or? I mean, it probably was. Uh I actually distinctly remember coming up with the name because I think the funny thing about the name is that I think it kind of gives off this sort of like, I don't know, power electronics-y sort of vibe. Mm-hmm. And this was not intentional, but I, you know, I was working, I was doing landscaping that summer and I needed a project name. So I remember sitting there all day with my iPod, just stringing words together, trying to come up with a name because I just, I couldn't pick one that I liked. And breaking the will flashed through my mind, and it didn't seem totally horrible. And I think I realized a few days later that that's just the name of a control song. Uh-huh. I was probably listening to a control CD on my iPod when I came right. up with that. Um, 
but I think the reason I've kept it is because for me, it's like not that sort of like outwardly focused PE thing where I'm like breaking someone's will. Right. Um, there are sort of like political connotations, but those have changed and dropped off over, over time. And I don't know, I, I, I'm really uninterested in having it linked to any sort of explicit political ideology. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of things I don't like in the world and they may be vaguely alluded to on releases, but it doesn't have a specific message or thematic behind it. And, you know, I'm uh, in academia and read a lot of stuff about history and violence all the time. So I like, I, I guess the imagery is meant to sort of provoke thought and not offer any sort of conclusions. Sure. Cause I certainly don't have any. For a minute there, I got a little worried and, and I was going through my mind. I was like, I was remembering when I did the art for your tape, I used like imagery, like, like political, political yeah. resistance imagery. And I was trying to go back in my head. I was like, has it always just been the labels doing the art? And we've just, we've just inadvertently grafted this, uh, this, this <laughs> imagery onto your project. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe I, you know, it's probably organic. Uh, cause I think the first tape I ever did, which was that split with vacuum, has like a soldier on it, but it was probably just a cool image. I mean, you'd have to ask Sam how he chose that. Right. But yeah, I mean, I think it's always been there. I don't know. I mean, the, the label's called New Forces, and at least one of the logos for the label appears to be some, yeah, some it's militants. Yeah, AL, it's ALF people. Yeah. So that stuff is definitely there. Cool. Yeah, you're not making it up. Right, right. Yeah. So can you go in, in, in more depth about like the beginning of the, 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 the early years of the project and, and the progression? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I think... My trajectory is probably similar to a lot of people's in which I think there's sort of like a harsh noise bell curve wherein that first little burst, you actually sound pretty sick because you have very little equipment, which is a good thing, and you're doing something really simple, which can be really effective. So the first few shows were just sort of relatively monolithic, harsh noise made with tapes and white noise generators and distortion pedals and that, you know, done well, that's sort of endlessly satisfying in a live context. But then there, there's that moment where, like, you get a little bit more gear and you try to get a little bit more fancy or a little bit more dynamic, which was totally my situation. And then I sucked for a while because I was trying to do something I couldn't. But, you know, but maybe that's a necessary step. And then I sort of have caught up to that over time. Um, and I think the project is sort of considered to be sort of like in the cut up harsh noise universe. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I don't, I don't explicitly identify the project as only that or anything, I think. I just want to make dynamic harsh noise um, mm-hmm. somewhere in between macronym and pain jerk, I guess, is the sweet spot. But yeah, I mean, yeah. So I think that yeah, I think that's everything. I mean, simple and effective at the, at first, and then sort of struggling to figure out how to do things more complicated. And I mean, recording is always a struggle, but I've gotten better at that over the years. But uh, live, it's in a more comfortable place than it was for a while. Yeah, I I think most people would place you in the cut up. Like if they had to push you in a one, and if they had to put you in a box, they'd put you in the cut up box. And so, my experience with lots of folks that do cut up style stuff is that they all have kind of a different approaches to how they produce recordings. Uh, live, a lot of people use the same same kind of tricks, you know. But but um, do you want to go into like? Is it, do you have like a particular approach that you take to, to doing to recording? I mean, that's maybe part of the problem with breaking is I don't have a particular approach. Mm. Um, and it's been different all the time. I mean, it's a mix of 
live sessions, edited sessions, overdubbing, some digital cutting, some cutting on tape, some live cutting with devices. It's kind of a hodgepodge, to be honest. Hmm. Um, maybe recording would be easier if I did develop a <laughs> specific template, but unfortunately I don't have one. Right. And, you know, I think I, I, I don't have this sort of like stop and start kind of chops that people like facial mess or sickness have nor do i seek it um i think a little bit more crude and a little bit more constantly moving is what i can do um which lends itself to my sort of lack of gear knowledge and expertise i guess Hmm. i've always thought that the sound and again this goes back to me worrying about like grafting right imagery that wasn't there onto a onto someone's project but you know, it always seems to me to like to sound kind of like pitched street battles. <laughs> you know, just a lot of like uh, aggressive shifts. But like, like you guys, it's kind of crude in that like it's not always like there's not like a clear stop, start, stop, start. Like a lot of the artists that you mentioned. Have. Yeah, and it's it's less. I don't know. I mean, I didn't even own a synthesizer until very recently. It's less electronic, and it's a lot of sort of amplified scrap and. Cruder sound sources, sure. I guess as opposed to the sort of laser beam right, cut up right. noise, which yeah. is not what it is. Yeah. Even though I love that stuff, so it seems like you started your project and the label almost not simultaneously, but very in quick success. In the session. same, in the same, like that spring and summer, they both got going. Okay. Yeah. Do you think? So, how's your experience been as a label? Yeah, I mean, so I think it's somewhat unique in that I started the label kind of at the in the during the last gasp of that mid 2000s boom in noise popularity like right at the end in 2010 so I released that first batch in the summer of 2010 and you know I mean honestly in the in the early days I was just doing what Sam said to do so like you get tapes and you dub them and you cut the J cards and then you put them on the mania or the chondritic sound noise board and you say they cost $5 and then people emailing you. And I mean, it was like, that was just, I, whatever he said to do. That was what I was doing. Sure. Sure. Uh, and so, yeah, so I put that first batch up on the Kendritic sound noise board and I sold dozens of them like in the first hour <laughs> and they sold out pretty fast. And I was like, my God, this label thing's awesome. It's like the easiest thing ever. People are clamoring for this stuff and this is going to be a cakewalk. And of course, like after that first batch, every subsequent batch got harder and harder to sell because People lost interest. That sort of boom died out. The forum started to die. Uh, so that's kind of been my perspective of like, I got a taste of like that total craze that was going on. Mm-hmm. And then since then, it's been like dealing with the utter disinterest. And like, I can't complain. Like, the label's fine. Things don't sit around forever. And I do enough to do the next project which is the only goal and that's the only goal for most people right i can't complain at all but it, it, i think it has been harder and i think most people would attest to that um i think the big thing was that it all moved i mean it was kind of online but it like moved into these liminal online spaces like social media and streaming websites and i was really slow to do that mm-hmm. i'm uninterested in spending a lot of time on there but like you can't put a release on a message board and expect to get you know, it's like it's almost more effective to have some random guy share a Bandcamp link 
and have his Facebook friends click on it. Right. Which is weird and whatever. That's just the reality of the situation. Yeah. I feel like a lot of folks in that in in who'd run labels say more more or less similar things where it's 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 especially in the recent time it's it's become more difficult to operate as a as a label because the interest is not there in the physical product. Yeah. So it's like uh you know, it's a hard transition because no one really wants to go like the problem is that like if you go all digital then it feels somehow I'm utterly uninterested in that. Like if it's going to be all digital then people can just put it out on their own band camp. Like why do I even need to be involved? Right. I mean I I like physical media. I like putting a tape into my tape deck and listening it into my room and not out of some shitty computer speakers and Yeah. That's just so yeah, I mean, you know, I, I put stuff on Bandcamp now and it's streaming and, you know, not many people listen to it, but if they want to, I guess I'm glad it's there for their amusement. Um, but as long as I can keep selling tapes, I'll keep doing it. I'm doing records now too, which is an even harder sell, but as long as I can sort of do that, I'll keep doing it. Right. Um, you know, probably around 2013, 14 it really started to taper off for U.S. sales. And there was a while there where it was probably 60, 40, or even 75, 25 European to U.S. sales. And by Europe, I mean the whole world, I guess I should say, because a lot of stuff goes to Australia, some stuff goes to Japan. Um, But I think, and originally that was surprising, right? Because as people know, shipping things overseas is insane and it gets worse every year. But for a while, that seemed not to deter people, which Mm -hmm. is weird. But I think finally now it's got to go to European distros. Like you still get the occasional freak that'll order direct from you. And if they do, it may, you know, they'll get a lot of stuff to kind of make it worth their while. Right. But yeah, distros have become increasingly important, but they're also increasingly ephemeral mm-hmm. understandably because running distro is extremely hard. Yeah. So if you run, if, if you run, if you were one of the people I send distro stuff to you and you're listening to this, thank you because you make this a lot easier, especially if you're not in the United States. So you're, you're, one of the few I shouldn't say one of the few that kind of sounds mean but you're a person who's very much got a life outside of just noise or or the underground world like you're, you have lots of other you're, you're juggling a lot more than just like a, a full-time job and noise or or a part-time job and noise or nothing and noise you know you're 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 you know you know, if you care to speak on like like kind of what what else you're involved in outside of outside of noise or that doesn't interest you, we don't have to discuss that. Yeah, we could talk about that. I mean, you know, outside of noise, I'm largely interested in other music. Right. So like collecting punk and hardcore and metal records takes up a lot of my time and mental energy, and other you know other random stuff. Um, been in grad school for the past six years and. You know, getting a PhD is a silly thing to do, but I'm doing it. And so a lot of teaching and a lot of reading, a lot of research, that's kind of been my life for the past six years. And hopefully finishing pretty soon and transitioning to a teaching job at a university or a college. But uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I like sports. I follow sports. People that know me know that. I like to get outside and hike and ride my bike. But I think you're maybe giving me a little too credit because I think about noise a whole hell of a lot. Sure, sure. I, I guess I just meant like, uh, I'm trying to think of a better way to frame the question. So, you know, for a, for a good number of people and there's nothing, there's no judgment on it, you know, 
uh, you know, a lot of folks have like job and like their subcultural interest and that that's and like most of the time and, and it's great, but it's like the misery of the job feeds the creativity towards the subcultural interest or the subcultural interest is really the only place they're getting input on, on their participation. Whereas, whereas like, you know, with, with, with someone who's, you know, kind of more actively engaged with other things going on in their life. Like, you know, for me, like I work for an, an animal rights organization. So a lot of my time is spent thinking about this, this thing that I'm very passionate about that, that, is kind of hard, actually hard for me to turn off when I want to go into do noise. Cause I don't really bring that into my noise. Uh, you know, so, so it's, 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 it's a competing interest of mine or like, or like, you know, like you know, even dumb stuff like my obsession with monster trucks plays heavily in that. Like I'm like trying to like incorporate those kind of sounds that I hear and identify into noise or. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, the way that manifests is, I mean, people people on the outside and sometimes the inside inside want to over intellectualize noise. Mm-hmm. And since for my job, I'm basically reading and teaching all the time. I'm sort of aggressively uninterested in like sitting in my room, like pondering the nature of noise. Like it's fun, and I like how it sounds and it feels good, and that's why I do it. Yeah, um, I like it because I get a rush from it, and I think it sounds great and it's fun. You know, it's, I mean, it's, there's, there's, I enjoy negative noise and sometimes my sets or my music can express negativity, but by and large, noise is fun and it feels good and that's why I do it. Sure. Um, sort of like an ecstatic thing. And because, you know, I mean, I think that people say like the average for grad school is you read a book a day. Like I'm reading all the time. I sort of, so like, for example, with my zine, I don't want my, I like my, my, my interviews, I'm more interested in stuff like. What are your shows like? What are you into? What is touring like? Like, I'm, what is the history of your project you're seeing? I'm more interested in these, what maybe seem like fluffier questions because I'm kind of not interested in like hashing out philosophy when I do my zine. Like, I got to do that for my job. Right. So I kind of want to just have fun with it. Yeah. And that's that's sort of the way. That's sort of the vibe with the noise and the label is that you know I kind of there are people that are that are heavy and thoughtful and intense and it's sincere and it makes their project great. There's also a lot of like trying really hard to have this like either a overly intellectual or overly extreme or overly intense sort of public persona. And sometimes I'm like, okay, like, but really like you just like jamming in basements and that's what's going on here. Right. Right. Um, Which is not to say that people shouldn't have thoughtful, intellectual, thematic content. They absolutely should. And it usually makes things better. Um, I'm just wary of attaching too much significance to that or acting like that's something more than it is. Right. Um, because you can often tell when, you know, if it's, if, if, if it's just getting slapped on there onto the tape, you can usually tell. I think, I think one thing that's kind of somewhat unique to you is to, to your experiences as well is that you, you, because of the nature of what you're doing outside the noise, you you're having to, you've been moving around a lot the last few years and, and, um, as someone who's also done some moving around in the last couple of years, it's made me really hyper aware of, of, of some of the nature of noise, like collecting, like nothing's more humbling than when you're putting all your stuff in a moving van and like for every 10 boxes, nine of them are somehow related to noise, be it a tape, 
or or tapes or zines or records or or you know gear and like yeah. you have one box of clothes yeah. and like it's no furniture and you're like truly pathetic <laughs> yeah, yeah you're like you're like wow like like i kind of got to focus on my life a little bit more <laughs> like um you know but but has has like moving around like because for a lot of people especially when it's it's you know you're not it's not like you were like uh green grand rapids has a six scene i'm picking up and moving to grand rapids like you're you're moving out of, out of a different kind of necessity. And so, uh, like, has that been like hard for you? Cause like that can be stifling for some people, like when they go somewhere that like, you know, luckily like right now you're in Ithaca where what, you know, you've got Weston and, and, and that's, you know, you're not too far from New York. You're not too far from yeah. other places, but a lot of times people, when they move to away from like away from a place like Minneapolis, it's like hard to create and to stay, stay motivated. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, it was a bummer to move away from Minneapolis. I think when I left, Minneapolis was sort of going through the inevitable turmoil when people are either getting a little bit older or getting a little bit less involved, and then some people need to fill in the void. And clearly, in that city, that's happened beyond even what I could have ever imagined. So they do these monthly things called tourniquet, which is like a monthly noise gathering. And from what I can tell, it's been absolutely phenomenal. There's just this overload of new projects which is great Mm -hmm. um people just starting out i was very fortunate to play one this summer and it was absolute blast um as good of a show environment as i've seen in minneapolis so things are clearly flourishing without me and Mm -hmm. i've been enjoying watching that from afar yeah i mean moving sucks i don't like it um you describe one of the main reasons i don't like it which is that i'm a, a total sicko with way too many records and tapes and it's become like a true ordeal to move. Um, and finally in this last one, I was like, I need to actively work as hard as I can to get some of these tapes out of the house. Cause just running a label, you, you accumulate so much stuff, mm-hmm. stuff you don't need to have. Um, but I keep buying more stuff cause we were just at triple R records. So it's not like it's getting better. I guess I need to find like some equilibrium where as much as going out is coming in <laughs> or something. I don't know. Right. But yeah, I mean, it has given me some perspective. I mean, as people know, and the internet has only exaggerated this, all these little noise scenes are so compartmentalized. Um, and it's like, it's a good thing to have a local scene that you're invested in. Um, but inevitably, they all have sort of a different vibe and a different flavor. So, you know, Minneapolis, when I was there, was sort of like the rugged Midwest, harsh noise no frills sort of thing, which yeah. kind of suits my personality perfectly. Um, and then I lived in Ann Arbor for a while, which is close to Detroit, which is sort of the like Hesher saxophone stoner jam zone. Um, and a lot of that stuff, you know, I like, I love the Wolf Eyes records. Don't get me wrong, but you know, that's kind of the vibe and it's not as much how my music sounds, which is fine. Um, but I went to some shows, I you know I went to mug and they have cool shows there, but I wasn't particularly involved. I don't really know those people as well. Right. Um, when I was living in Michigan, my sort of social noise universe orbited around Grand Rapids, which is about two two hours to the west, which is an amazing place, largely thanks to the efforts of Brandon Hill and a few other people. If you don't know Brandon, he's the guy that does plagues and star relations. And I guess just a PSA, if you're on tour, go to Grand Rapids yeah. because the show will be incredible. Um, and it'll be above a sick vegan sandwich shop. So what more could you ask for? Truly, truly. 
Right. So Grand Rapids is great, and I played several really wonderful shows there. I mean, the sort of like funny thing about Grand Rapids for a while is like when people would roll through, the openers would be some combo of Plagues, Breaking the Well, Cackerlack, Paranoid Time, like awesome openers. Yeah. Like you could just go for the openers. Um, so Grand Rapids is great, and Ann Arbor was fine. I mean, saw the occasional bigger touring artist and. I would drive down to Ohio pretty pretty regularly since I have all these friends in Cleveland and Dayton and Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. So that was Michigan. Um, I've also lived two years in Ithaca, New York, because my partner is at Cornell University. Um, and Ithaca is better than it has any business being for how small it is. That's largely thanks to Weston Zerkey's Sunken Cheek and Prime Rune label boss. Um... Weston's from Syracuse, which is about an hour north. And between Syracuse and Ithaca, he has worked really, really hard to make this a viable place for touring acts to come, which is kind of amazing. Um, And so Ithaca has been fine. You know, it's not like I'm living in Louisiana or Wyoming or someplace where there's absolutely nothing. There's stuff going on. And I've been very fortunate to have that. Like to play the occasional local show, which is fun and also just good to sort of keep your performing chops in. We're close to Buffalo, New York, which has lots of folks. We're close to New York City. So Ithaca's been fine. Um, It's a hippie town. It has this sort of like local music on steroids thing where there's like this really healthy music scene, but it's like I'm using local music in air quotes. It's like local music. You know, people that are really into sort of being like Ithaca musicians. And what that means is that there's sort of this like casual interest in noise or like doing experimental music, but sort of not having really any interest in noise as a genre or set of related genres or like, so for example, when Wesson brings in touring artists, people are unlikely to come. I think it's, it's a thing that I think happens in a lot of local scenes where it's like experimental music is my thing to just do fuck all as opposed to like, I listen to Mersbo or Wolf Eyes or Prurient or Macronympha, and, like, I'm motivated by that. It's just, like, I've got this weird gear, let me tinker. Yeah. Which is fine, but it's just, like, not what I'm interested in. Right. But there are a few other people besides Watson here that do cool stuff, and it's been a great place to live. Nice. Good. We've, we've, we've handed out it a little bit here, but uh, you're vegan as well, and I think you're the second or third vegan on the show. People are probably picking up on a pattern of who I who I want to talk to. Who else uh, has been? Who other? Zen. Zen. Yeah. You. I'm trying to think. I think that might be it, actually. Okay. We should probably get more. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's... How many vegan straight-edge people have been on the show? Oh, Shawnee. Oh, Shani. Shawnee's not vegan, though, but Shawnee's straight-edge. Well, uh, Shawnee, why don't you just quit posing and, and try go vegan? And, yeah. Or you live in New York City. It's not like there's a shortage of vegan options there. I'm going to cut all this, but I'm just going to send him this, <laughs> this piece. <laughs> But um, let's see how I want to frame the question. So uh, just based on my own experiences, I'm going to assume that you got into veganism through punk and hardcore. Correct. Or, okay. And um, probably the same with being straight edge. Uh, Correct. I think I'm, I'm sure there's people that existed before Sam, but like Sam's the first person I can think of. That was vegan straight edge. That's that was in noise, uh, like at least like 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 that was like from our age range, and what sort of wears it on their sleeve, and yeah, and it's very like 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 that's a thing that people know about right. him, right. and it's same with you, and the same with with I, and like I could talk about my experiences, and I'm looking forward to talking to Sam about his experiences, but 
a lot of noise is is like most underground scenes kind of tied to like a little bit of a party culture right maybe more so sometimes with right. like noise and so uh do you care to speak on like your experiences as someone who uh doesn't have the good drugs when they come into town <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, there's, like, nothing lamer than, like, the straightest person whining about how they don't have access to social spaces because everyone's partying, Um, which is not to say I've never done that. (laughs) Right, right, yeah. Uh, Yeah, I mean, like, underground, most underground scenes, the noise scene is a party scene. I've navigated that relatively painlessly. I mean, people know my deal, and I just am uninterested in engaging with people that are, like, fucked up to the point where I don't want to interact with them, so I just don't. Yeah. Which is, like, a... And this is, like, small enough and weird enough that you have that option. Right. Like, it's not like everybody's dancing and you're being the bummer dude. Like, I can just stand by my merch table and scowl and (laughs) talk to people that I know and I don't have to deal with people that are inebriated to the point where they're unpleasant to be around. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So, you know, it's fine. There's nothing to really complain about. It's, you know, I the degree to which drugs and alcohol sort of determine the vibe in those spaces, I guess is kind of lame, but that's just what it is. Yeah. I'm not going to change that. Right. Yeah. 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 And you know, I didn't, I didn't bring it up to like, kind of like, like shit on all of our friends <laughs> right? Who, who I, who I love. And I'm, as long as people are happy, I'm happy. As long as someone's ability to express themselves doesn't in, in, impinge upon someone else that I don't yeah, I mean, really, you know, really have that much of a problem like occasionally in a toxin-pated personal ruin a show but like you know a sober asshole can ruin a show too so it yeah. probably all evens out in the end yeah exactly yeah um so that was just a shameless way to just get that in there we didn't really have a we didn't i didn't really answer ask a question you didn't really answer a question but now we've firmly established our identity within the We were just on podcast. tour and we listened to a lot of straight edge hardcore. A lot of straight edge hardcore. That was the vibe on this awesome. tour. Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing we could talk about is, is, is you, you've toured a lot more than most, most noise projects do. You think so? I think so. Huh. Okay. Yeah. I mean, there's like, it seems like there's like two different kinds of people in noise. There's the people that go on tour forever and maybe like, in my opinion, wear out their welcome a little bit by just going on tour forever. Right. And then there's people that play like in like their region, right? And then the never anywhere else. And that could be there could be a million different motivations for either of those situations. But like with like you or like Luke um, and like Shane to, to a lesser extent, like y'all seem like at least once or twice a year to go out of your way to play somewhere that's not your immediate vicinity and like to go you know you know out of the country or or out to, you know to the west coast or like. So, you know, like, uh, I guess to speak to your experiences as a touring artist. I think it's, I mean, from a personal standpoint, it's good to do because it makes you better. Yeah. Um, a lot, I mean, a lot of noise to some extent recording, particularly in the live context is being able to control, manage, and adapt to the inevitable things that go haywire whenever you perform. I mean, every time you plug into a new PA, your gear is going to react differently, things are going to break, and developing that sort of finesse and being fast on your feet to respond to that sort of thing makes you better. Um, I wouldn't tour if I didn't really like playing live. 
I really, really like playing live. And sometimes it goes horribly and I'm upset about it. But when it goes great, that makes it worth it. There's just sort of rush you get by making sounds that are this loud in a room and having people hopefully be into it that doesn't compare to anything. Um, and that's the main reason you go on tour. And like, you know, I, I like the projects that I have and I want to share them with people. Yeah. Um, I guess we've done the West Coast, done the Midwest, done the East Coast. I mean, the thing about noise touring is it's different every time you do it. I mean, these scenes are so ephemeral and fragile. Two years can make all the difference between a place being incredible and a place being kind of dead. Sure. That's not really anybody's fault. I mean, in any of these places, it's like one or two people keeping it on life support. And if (laughs) those people move, that's just kind of it. Yeah. Until some new people step up to do it. Totally. Yeah. So every city's different. Some cities have been great and then bad other times. There's kind of really no rhyme or reason to it. Right. Right. Uh, what are some, some of the, your favorite shows that you've played? Favorite shows I played, yeah. Um, the first time I played Dayton, this is maybe 2012 or 2013, was incredible. This was at Luke Taney's old house, the Battery Cage. Um had been corresponding with Luke for years, had been on tour with him before. He'd come to Minnesota and met with me, and we'd been get on tour with him and Nate, his brother, but I'd never been to his house in Dayton. Plays basement, packed house, a lot of names and faces I recognized and knew, and it was a blast. Um, I think that was sort of catching a wave of Dayton being particularly active and people really getting out, so that tour sticks out in my mind. Or, sorry, that show sticks out in my mind. Uh, the Metropolitan Audio Pain Source Fests in New York City the ones that I played were a lot of fun. Um, I think, you know, those were jam-packed fests in a way that some of the heavier hitters often went on really late in the day, or I should say night. And so wherever I ended up sliding into those lineups, I usually sort of caught people at that perfect moment where they were, like, wasted but functional and stoked, yeah. as opposed to, like, wasted and sad and dysfunctional right and so those i remember those both my map sets being really physical and energetic and being able to feed off that audience energy because that makes a huge difference i mean especially with the kind of noise i do like i don't want people to sort of stand there scratching their head and like thinking about it like i wanted to sort of feel it physically and and that was happening at both those shows those were good shows um the Just Dead set I played in Minneapolis over the summer that I mentioned earlier at that tourniquet set was a lot of fun just because I hadn't played Minneapolis in a long time. It was really fun to go back and show some of those people what I've been doing since then, um, particularly since the Just Dead project, which is this side project I do as sort of this place-based project that has a lot to do sonically and aesthetically and thematically with a particular lake in northern Minnesota, which is where I go when I go home to visit family. So it was cool to actually do that in Minnesota. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about Joe said, but I, I do have a question before we, we go into that. Uh, that's sort of, that's kind of related. Uh, with Breaking the Will, you you put out a, some, did you put it out the CD or did someone else put it out? Uh, Narcolepsia and Terror put it out. Okay. So the CD. A Portuguese and Lithuanian label. Oh, yeah, I didn't know where. Pretty sure it's Lithuania. Labus, okay. if I got that wrong, I'm really sorry, but I'm almost positive it's Lithuania. <laughs> um, so that was like, it was, that was one of my favorite CDs of the year that it came out. I think that was 2015. That sounds about right. And, um, 14 or 15. 
Yeah, yeah. It definitely was in Milwaukee. I remember that. Okay. But um, I really liked it because because a I, I like everything you, you do, and uh, I felt like it it had a bit of a different vibe than most of the stuff before it. I mean, there's is it still like very much breaking the will, mm-hmm. but like there were a couple of tracks that seemed like kind of departures from the normal. Yeah, I tried to push myself compositionally a little bit. Yeah. In a way that was hard and productive, and it had sort of a at least in my mind, more explicit thematic and narrative arc through the CD, which is something I wanted to try. And it's not something I want to do all the time, but I think in the context of that CD, it made sense for the project. Um, so I'm happy with how it turned out relatively speaking. Yeah. Yeah. Did, did Joe said come after the, that, that came after was recorded? I, okay. you know, I don't recall exactly. I mean, so, so Joe said, which, as a sidebar, everyone knows how to pronounce now. Everyone's well, waiting. I mean, here's what I'm going to say though, because <laughs> my younger sister has lived in Norway for several years, so she has these Norwegian friends, and according to them, it's more like Justa. Mm. So, but whatever we say, Joe's dead. <laughs> it's like sort of a kind of soft, kind of silent KJ. So, but yeah, so it's a lake in northern Minnesota, um, and I really am racking my brain. So the first tape is that tape Wolf Knoll Road, mm-hmm. which I released. And that's the name of the access road that winds around the lake. So it's this lake that's about 10 minutes from the Canadian border. It's relatively undeveloped. Um, and that's where I go when I go home and visit family in northern Minnesota or on that lake. Um, and it was just sort of like a one-off experiment. You know, I, I rarely enjoy breaking the will, which is maybe not a good thing. But the recording process for that is stressful and it's never really satisfying. It never quite gets to where I want it to go. It gets close. And I've gotten better over the years at getting it closer to where I want it to be. But it's it's sort of aggravating and, I guess, a productive way. And I was just doing whatever experiments one night with different gear, different textures, maybe some field recordings, and just kind of hit record. And the process of doing that a few times turned into that first tape with no roll. And it was a blast to record. It was really fun. It had explicit of enough of a different vibe sonically that I felt justified in giving it a different name I mean it, I, I I don't like when people have three billion monikers across which except for Richard Ramirez he gets the ultimate pass I want a thousand more different Richard Ramirez projects but aside from Richard I think it's good to have projects that can encompass a range of approaches mm-hmm. but sometimes you need something different and I felt like this was justified in having a different name. So I did the one-off tape. I really liked it, most importantly, but I think some other people thought it was cool and thought it was a nice change of pace. So I think out of that, Jared, who runs Mazurka Editions, wanted to do a tape, and so I was like, fine, we can make this a thing and see what happens. And the great thing about it is because... It's kind of just fun and experimental and is largely based on field recordings from Joestead Lake. It can kind of be whatever, mm-hmm. which is really liberating compared to Breaking the Will, which has an ex- it has layers. I mean, there's a specific target I'm aiming for with that project, and Joestead can go anywhere, kind of. Right. So it's a little bit more relaxed to record, and it's been going. So I think there's maybe six or seven or eight releases at this point. I just did a split LP with Ligature mm-hmm. that came out late 2017 that I'm quite proud of, um, both for my own contribution, but more importantly, 
the literature side is phenomenal. And I think both Chris and I were at a point where it was like the projects have been improving, perhaps a more widely available release is justified. So I think I'm sometimes on the fence on split LPs, but I think when you're catching two artists at that moment where maybe like they're not quite at the full length, but a split LP that's widely available is a good thing. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the situation with that record. So I'll keep doing it. It's a lot of fun. It allows me to record when I'm home visiting family and do cool things outside. Yeah. And combine that with noise, which is perfect. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I liked that was what initially, besides the fact that it was you, what drew me towards it was that you could tell the source you couldn't I wouldn't know but like the the names of the tapes the vibe the sound sources it was very like organic and mm-hmm. I'm, I'm my my word we've been on tour and my words are failing me right now but like nature-y nature sure. nature-centric organic you know, like, I mean the sort of like stupid tagline I've been using is environment electronics yeah there you go which maybe that's makes great. me sound like an asshole but I think nah, it works that's great it's great but but I like that as you know yeah as you know, I mean, my, it's like my, the merging of organic and electronic, yeah, stuff, right? Yeah, <laughs> uh, it appealed to to the primitivist side of me, where it's like I'm sure yeah, it did. Like you can you can make noise and it doesn't have you to can be make like, noise with a with birch bark. Yeah, yeah. Um. So, and 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 if I am totally off base after what you said, uh, just just say, but it's it sort of seems like it it the project came seeming like like uh an unintentional like you started you were trying to work on breaking the will and you and you ended up in a different location and you realized that the location was yeah somewhat i mean i think i I think i finished the breaking will cd and just needed a break okay and just that has done a really nice job of filling that void for a few years where this, I don't know if there was a moment where I was like, this CD can kind of be the end of breaking the will and mm-hmm. sort of captures what I was trying to do with it eight years ago when I was younger. Um, but you know, at this point I'm going to keep it going and I think it can be its own thing, but it, it basically just did a great job of keeping the creative thing going when I was a little bit burned out yeah. on breaking the will, having done the full length CD. It's, it's funny cause that's what, which slip, is what slip throws has done for you mother. relative yeah. to plague mother. Yeah. yeah. And, Lots of people do that. I think it's necessary. Yeah. yeah. You started doing uh, a zine, uh, I think it was 2013? 13, 14. Yeah. No, it's, it's a little bit more recent. I mean, I've been cranking them out. I would say 14 at the earliest, maybe even 15. Okay. okay. But yeah, so do you, you want to talk about your, your motivations for it? I mean, God only knows why I started to do the zine. Some <laughs> stupid idea. Uh, I mean, I love zines, so I was so I know. excited it's when like, you told me you were going to do like it. It's like glutton for punishment. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I honestly don't remember what the genesis was. It's probably just that DIY thing that gets under your skin where you just think you need to do this stuff. Yeah. Which is good yeah. and bad, right? It's like yeah, yeah. Good for the scene, broadly defined, but like maybe bad for your time management skills, but sure, whatever. Totally. <laughs> yeah, so I just, I mean, like everything with this label and the noise, I just did it. I had no idea what I was doing, and the first couple looked like I had no idea what I was doing. I mean, the weird thing about it and you mentioned how much I've been moving around, but the first couple I kind of did all on my computer traveling, which like, so they kind of look digitally and I'm not crazy about how they look. And now I'm doing a more Xerox orthodox kind of thing, which I like better. But yeah, I don't remember what the Genesis was, but I just wanted to do a zine. So I interviewed some people. I think the first one had John Borges, 
of vasculine and monorail trespassing and also pedestrian positive with Shannon. Um, and then seal her prostheses and orgasmic response unit and maybe Nod was the first one. You were in the first one? I think so. Plague Mother's in the first one. Okay, good. Yeah. yeah. And it's... I had, I had all the stuffy answers. Right. It's, be, it's, best re, it's best read in a nasally voice. I mean, here's the thing about zines, though. Like, people, every single person that does a zine interview, like, freaks out. And they're like, oh, I sound like a dick. I was too wordy, not wordy enough. And, like, everyone, everyone's always sounds fine, you know? And the the interviews don't go well when people are really tight-lipped. So I actually like it when people get really verbose and articulate and go on for too long because the alternative is just like a boring interview. Yeah. So don't apologize for that. And any future zine interviewees, feel free to wax eloquent because it makes my life easier. But, uh, yeah, I've done eight issues in like a few years. I think yeah. I need a break or something. But yeah. I like doing the interviews. I'm particularly interested in sort of like – you know, I'm a historian, so I'm interested in like the history of scenes and how do things fit together. Like, how does this little thing that's happening over here fit into a broader picture, nationally, internationally, whatever? That's the kind of stuff I'm interested in finding out. I do the obligatory reviews, um, not too many because I don't love that aspect. I really love listening to noise, kind of enjoy just like feeling it viscerally, not thinking about it. Right. Um, and the occasionally cool feature. I've gotten less good about that, but I need to sort of flex that creative muscle a little bit more. But my favorite one is I did the what's going on at Triple R thing where I would just randomly interview Ron Lassard at Triple R Records every once in a while and just be like, it's 11.55, what's going on at the store? And he's like, oh, some locals buying a Dr. Dre CD or like I just boxed up a bunch of recycled tapes for this dude in Sweden or whatever. Um so yeah, the zine will keep going, but maybe issue nine might be a little ways off. We'll see. Mm-hmm. So you 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 meant you, you kind of made the reference earlier, uh, and you you made it a couple times just as we've been talking while in the car, uh, of of kind of never being happy with 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 breaking the will. Like you're you're always aiming for something that you don't feel like you reach. Yeah, so I don't want to imply that I'm releasing things that I think suck. Right. Because um, I don't think you should do that. <laughs> but I think I do, and, and maybe negatively set expectations that are unrealistic or unattainable. Or I mean, there, there's like a positive and negative. I think not just in noise and anything, striving for something that's beyond what you're getting to is a way to get somewhere better. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's part of it. But, yeah, I mean, breaking the will, I don't know. For whatever reason, I've got releases that I'm happy with, but it's hard to record. And Joe's dad just kind of seems to flow more organically. I mean, breaking the will isn't relaxed music, so I guess it kind of makes sense. Right, yeah. It's like exacting and precise when it's done well, I guess, and it's hard to do. Hmm. It's just interesting that, and I think this happens for a lot of, people that do noise that are in my opinion like a little more thoughtful or like put a little more consideration into what they're doing but it it is that it's what you're experiencing it's like it's it's never good enough and the simple word is perfectionist yeah but this can become a negative thing so i mean because i you go ahead oh just 
it's a similar theme to hear like people say like it's like it's never good enough but i keep going back to it every time whereas like for a lot of people in a lot of different situations and, and, and it, it, a lot of perfectionists it's like they hit that point where this it's never going to be good enough and they give up and they move on to the next thing right so and that's what i was going to talk about because running the label and curating stuff i deal with because that's like i'm hardly unique in being a person who's like not happy with a lot of the recording because mm-hmm. I think you shouldn't be. You should release the stuff that's the stuff you're happiest with. Right. You shouldn't release everything. Right. Even though some people do. That they do. Um. But at running the label, with a lot of people, it reaches a point where I'll sort of step in and say, "Look, you need to send me what you've got, because perfectionism can can become negative and can keep you from releasing stuff that is fantastic." Um. So. I'll, with people that are maybe struggling or hesitant to sell me, send me stuff, I'll tell them, look, you need to send it to me and I'll be completely honest with you if I think it's not ready, but it probably is. And I've never gotten a master that's been agonized over like that and been like, no, you're right. This isn't good enough. It's always phenomenal. And I can just say, look, you need to feel okay about this. I'm releasing it. I'm going to put this money into it. I'm telling you it's fantastic. Right. So this is something that all kinds of people go through. And I think it's good for whether it's the label or your friends, just get it out of your hands and not look for affirmation, but for someone to tell you honestly, like you've done the work necessary with this piece of art to make it good. Yeah. And if you sit on it for too long, you might negatively affect it. And if you don't ever put it out there, you're depriving people of something that might be good. So you need to let it go. Has all the material for Joseph been recorded off of that in, in that like land base? There's stuff from that environment on every tape. Okay. That me has meant different things. Um, the most common denominator is field recordings recorded on site in the lake or in the surrounding forests. I have actually done some recording there. Um, we didn't have electricity for a long time. And then there was sort of this one-time opportunity to have the power company run cables underneath the lake. And you basically had one chance to opt in or not. So we've got electricity there now, which is great from a noise-making perspective. So I can bring gear up there and play, which is fun to sit on the porch and look at the lake and make noise. Um, so there are there are recordings or snatches of recordings or sessions that have made it onto tapes that were recorded at the lake. So there is there is some element of Joe's dad in every Joe's dad release, and I I'm not married to that concept, but I think that makes sense. And since I'm getting so much of the material from that place. It'll probably continue to be a consistent thing. It doesn't need to define the project in absolute terms, but I think it's probably going to continue to define the project just because that's how it works. So aside from breaking the will and Joe's dad, you also have action discipline, which you do with Brad uh, Griggs, who lives in now lives in Columbus. Right. Or sorry, he used to live in Columbus. He now lives in Cincinnati. Right. 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 Recently relocated to Cincinnati, which is not a huge relocation but to a different ohio noise scene that's the move brad made right so do you want to talk about how that project came about and how that's been and and... yeah uh tour with brad and as brad griggs and being in hostage pageant and then the next summer me and brad were going to do a collaboration for summer scum i believe this was summer scum 2013 maybe or 14 it was the last one in buffalo uh, that would be 14. That was 14? Yeah. Okay. So 2014, we did a collab at Summer Scum in Buffalo. And it was a lot of fun. So I had encouraged him that we should 
do this as we done it live and I said well, let's try to do a tape and see what happens so we sort of gathered up source material and I mixed together a tape and I think we had it at that performance and it was a lot of fun to do I mean the thing about Brad is that he's about as good as it gets at performing harsh noise live yeah so like tethering myself to that particular engine is a good career move like I'm never gonna look bad next to Brad because I could have all my gear go up in flames and he would still be over there ripping and I could just act like I'm somehow contributing right so for me it's great because I get to play live with Brad and Brad is so good live um but the recordings have been a lot of fun to make too you know it's it's different our different recording process and what I do we're both working with him and working with his source material and then finding ways to mix it and edit together to sort of accommodate our differences in style and texture and recording and emerge with something cohesive that's also been a nice other noise outlet for me um and action discipline is pretty simple it's for the love of harsh noise um people that know brad and know me that know that that's we're not aiming for anything too esoteric we want to sound like incapacitants and macronympha and right. pay homage to music that we love and it's fun to do live it's fun to record and that's the vibe with action discipline we toured with it on the west coast last april mm -hmm. and it was a lot of fun nice one thing I like about the project is y'all have some longer releases. Yeah. It's like, that's not very common these days. Right. People have sort of gone away from the 90s C60 zone. Um, I don't know. I think there's certain harsh noise, like, I mean, in particular, incapacitance where, I mean, the thing with harsh noise is usually like volume, like volume does something for that genre. It doesn't do for other genres. Mm -hmm. But I think also sometimes with the right band, like the incapacitants, time also plays a role. So there's, I mean, there, there are moments when you're like 20 minutes into an incapacitance tra track and you kind of start to lose your sense of space or something happens. The combination of volume and time, that's a sort of unique thing to that kind of harsh noise. So I think if it's engaging, that long form harsh noise can do something particular yeah. that a C10 or a C15 or a C20 just can't. Right. Um, and it's also a challenge to try to record material that long and it's fun to try to figure out ways to do that. Yeah. Cause you know, I mean, it's, it's not a wall noise project. We're not setting it and forgetting it. So it's, it's a fun problem to solve from an editing perspective to mm -hmm. keep things fresh for that long of time. Right. And so, um, do you, does you do the editing? So far, I've done so most far. of the editing. Okay. Um, we can, you know, we could do it any number of ways, but yeah, it's been sort of like a process of accumulating source material. Um, Brad is particularly good at loops, um, so we've been incorporating more heavy loops, you know, as a homage to the great Roger Stella, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, ac accumulating between the two of us a bunch of recording sessions material, and then through alchemy, making that into a harsh noise tape. Right. Right. Do you? Let's see here. Um, you know, I think that that approach that you said, like like the Roger Stella homage approach of accumulating all the source material over time and then going right. at it. Is I mean, the thing I love about Macronympha is that there's specific things. Like, for example, there's that sound of a pipe hitting the floor and bouncing end to end two or three times that shows up across her discography. It's like this little gem that makes it. I mean, Macronympha is Macronympha, and it always, the real Macronympha always sounds like real Macronympha. But that pipe 
is like this little thing that pops out that's like this added bonus. And I like the idea of having like little tweaks in your discography that stand out like that. Um, so yeah, and I like anything if you accumulate a lot of material through the process of cramming that into a track you're going to discard the good stuff and hope we'd be left with the or discard the bad stuff and hope we'd be left with the good stuff so right right i just think it's it's it is something that's not as common nowadays like i don't like i don't do that like i don't have the patience right i mean it's to like to sit on shit for that long it's largely ineffective that we just don't live in the same city i mean this right. is like the classic male collaboration situation and there have been a few rare instances where we get to record together and that inevitably makes it into a release but it's just an effect of not being in the same place right. and the trick is when you're doing that making assembling it into something that sounds cohesive because we're recording on different equipment it can sound all kinds of different ways so there's a lot of recording tracks to tapes playing them back recording the tapes playing them back and sort of funneling them through enough gear that eventually it sounds like we jammed it out together spontaneously sure or at least has the illusion of that. Right. So in 2016, you and uh, Luke Tandy being in Skeleton Dust Records, you put together a fest called Amplified Humans, and uh, I played it. So, I, I, I mean, like, I want to say it was the best plus best fest ever, minus me. But um, do, you, do you, like, I'd love I'd love just for you to, like, go into, like, the process of that, and then and, and we can take sure. it in whatever direction you want. Yeah, I mean, the fest was a blast. I mean, it wasn't perfect. Um, there's things that I do differently, inevitably. But it was a really good show, which is what we wanted to have happen from top to bottom on the bill. So the original genesis was, you know, Luke's always talked about doing like a skeleton dust showcase. And I felt like the new forces discography had gotten big enough that I could also justify that. And so the original genesis of the idea was we take two nights and one night would sort of be a skeleton dust night and the other night would be a new forces night. Hmm. Uh, and then inevitably we got greedy and thought about dream people to ask and it kind of snowballed and the real tipping point, you know, we'd sat around fantasizing about if we could magically wave a wand and get projects to come, who do we want? And one of those was killer bug. And we ended up reaching out to Kazumoto Endo and he was perceptive and so we were like, okay, this can become a little bit more serious. And it didn't get out of control from there, but it got quite a bit bigger from there. Mm-hmm. But the main red thread was, the two the two red threads tying it all together were a fest particularly interested in showcasing harsh noise because that's the main thing that Luke and I like. We didn't want it to be homogenous, but that's just kind of where our interests lie. And I think sometimes there's less of that at fests. Um there's a lot of tape music, a lot of power electronics, a lot of drone. And there's sort of this festive, I call it the fest effect for harsh noise, but pretty reliably harsh noise artists will get the more enthusiastic response to the fest because it's just good live music. And if you've seen a bunch of drone and PE and then all of a sudden someone's just get, getting buck wild with harsh noise, the audience is always particularly excited about it. I mean, you can see this across the board at fests. And so I had to have a whole fest of that was sort of the dream. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, and then and then the label thing. So most of the artists had connections to our labels, and then a few sort of dream people. So the the two big ones were Killer Bug and Kazuma Kubota from Japan, um, and then some Canadian folks and some folks from California ma- managed to make it. Um, 
yeah, I mean, you know, the festival isn't perfect, um, and there are things that, are, you know, we do differently or won't defend, but I think the net result was positive. Uh, I was actually sort of stunned by the degree to which everybody, I mean, it was a lot of people that I've seen perform tens of, dozens of times. I mean, people like you are not or deterge and other people I've seen so many times, but kind of across the board, it was like personal best after personal best. And I could, you know, like sit back objectively watching and be like, people I've seen over and over again are turning in their best version of themselves, which is really gratifying as a curator because that's one of the things you don't have control over. And the international folks that came from really far away were beyond phenomenal, which, you know, doesn't always happen. Right. But, you know, I mean, Luke, seeing Luke stand up and just throw his arms into the air after Killer Bug in the most pure expression of joy sort of encapsulates how the weekend went. Yeah. Um, and we're quite fortunate that Jay Linsky, a.k.a. Bullart, um, had three videos running all weekend and was capturing sound at the board and has worked incredibly hard to put together a double DVD with more than five hours and includes every single set in its entirety. And that'll probably already be available by the time this interview comes out. But um, there are a few performances from that weekend that I think need to be documented. Um, the Aaron Dilloway set was perhaps the best artistic performance I've ever seen. Definitely top five. Yeah. Killer Bug was, you know, top five noise sets ever. And nobody, nobody fucked up. Like it was from top to bottom <laughs> phenomenal. So yeah. I don't know. I don't want to be gushing too hard, but yeah. I mean that, that Dil there was like a clip of that Dillaway set that went like, yeah, it went viral noise, kind of, noise which viral. Is weird. <laughs> like deservedly. Uh, so, I mean, yeah. he was, he was out of his mind yeah, yeah. during that set. Utterly phenomenal. So. Yeah, and it was just good to try to do a fast. I mean, it's like a thankless, hard thing to do, but also gratifying. Mm -hmm. um, I yeah. wanted to give people the opportunity to see noise live. I benefited from that, from other people's hard work. And so, you know, maybe we'll do another one. Stay tuned. Who knows? Yeah. It's definitely not the kind of thing that can or should happen every year. Yeah, I think I think we all learned from Summer Scum that it's not sustainable to do that over and over and over and over and over again. Yeah, yeah, it's hard. I it's mean, hard work. Yeah. It, it, it's like you said it's thankless for the people that are behind it and it's heartbreaking for the people that aren't those people that love those people to like watch them hit that wall after a while yeah but, but you know I mean bottom line is if you want to do a fest you should do a fest and you can curate however you want and that, that that's what I like about fest like being thoughtful about who's on it which is what most people do yeah um, it's fun to go see a weekend that sort of presents particular kind of vision and ours wasn't perfect i'll be the first to admit that but you know it was a good show and that's mm -hmm. that's the best you could ask for so um you know kind of getting to a getting to a point where we'll wrap it up here uh what what's in store for the future for for new forces for all your projects yeah probably too much in store but <laughs> i guess it's good to stay busy uh, literally dropping a new batch right now, which has tapes by Worth, Julio, and Ruselka. Ruselka being Vancouver's Kate Rizziak, who's, you know, part of that cohort of harsh noisers like the Rita or Taskmaster, Flat Gray, just the, the perfect scene as far as harsh noise. So mm -hmm. excited to work with her. Worth, Will Van Gorder, another great harsher. And then, um, body, not Julio, Body Stress and Yasuhito Fujinami. 
which is a split between a Danish and a Japanese person. Um, and then the eighth issue of my zine, New Forces, which I guess we didn't really talk about, but we're doing the zine New Forces. Issue eight's out. Check it out. It's got interviews with Ligature, Rusalka, Interracial Sex, and Juyo, which is that Minneapolis band I mentioned earlier. As far as upcoming plans, there's always tapes in the works. I'll keep cranking out the tapes. People that follow the label know kind of the style um, mm -hmm. and what to expect. Some bigger vinyl projects that I'm excited about. I'm going to be shortly putting a Sissy Spacek LP into production, which I'm excited about. I love that project. And this is it's it's kind of perfect because I feel like John and Charlie created a recording specifically tuned to my personal interests, which is gratifying since I'm the one that's going to be releasing it. So it's a 45 RPM A side of ripping crazy noise core as only they can do. And then the B side is a 33 RPM, 20 minute harsh noise, pure Japanese harsh noise worship. I don't know. It's, it's, it sounds like incapacitance and pain jerk and all the stuff I love. So it's kind of a perfect tape for my own personal interest or perfect LP for my own personal interest. So I'm quite excited about that. And then the other big project in the horizon is a reissue of the Rita double cassette magazine which Tommy Carlson released a while back. It's the one that iconically has the gun with the Big Muff cartridge for the artwork, some of the great noise artwork of all time. Um, widely and deservedly considered one of the pinnacles of the Rita discography, and unfortunately released in a pretty limited cassette edition. Funnily enough, in working on this project, Tommy mentioned that he originally just thought it was too extreme and that people <laughs> wouldn't like it. And like... He sort of grossly uh, underestimated people's desire to get punished by Sam's walls of noise. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so it's going to be really great to make that more widely available. That'll be a double LP. Wow. That's in the horizon, so look out for that. And uh, that's, you know, that's a... That's like the perfect reason to do reissue. Something that wasn't widely available and something that people really need to hear. Mm -hmm. So I'm excited about that. Um, so yeah, is, is there anything else you want to say? Anything to wrap it up? Any any words to the any words to the youth of today? Yeah, listen to more youth of today. Yes. Uh, <laughs> the vegan straight edge rules. Yeah, the vegan straight edge tour is sort of the purest form of the noise tour. <laughs> so I would encourage you to experience that once yeah. in your life. Yeah, if you want calm, responsible, timely, generally pleasant people to come rip harsh noise sets in your town have i got a package for you but we're not fun so that's the yeah. problem yeah we are not fun uh yeah i mean you know like get to the gig and listen to more noise hell yeah i mean these like even just beyond my own thing these labels are so ephemeral like you gotta support them and you gotta support the distros and the physical store. I mean, the crazy thing is that there's been like just recently two brick and mortar stores between thousands of dead gods and skeleton dust, which now is a physical location, which is insane. Yeah. And a lot of kudos to them for doing that. But like go to their store and buy. How often do you get to go into a store and buy noise? Yeah. So you need to go do that if you have the opportunity. Yeah. yeah. It's wonderful. I mean, the best part about that and, and I haven't been to hopefully by the time this is out, I'll gone down to Dayton and, and spend some time with Luke but the best well the best thing about going to Thousands Dead Gods is like just going in there and like Justin or Matt just listening to tapes and talking and like if if you tell them what you like they will find you tapes that you've never heard of and play them for you and you can determine whether or not you want them or not but it's it's an experience yeah like, noise rules listen to more of it and don't be a cynical negative asshole 
that's directed just as much at myself as this is the audience for this but like it rules have fun with it yeah noise rules i think it's a perfect way to end this all right thanks roman thanks so much Devin. Thanks again, Stefan, for taking some time uh, after a string of shows to sit down and, and, and uh, kind of struggle through an interview. As, as uh, That one was heavily edited, folks. I had a lot of pauses where my words were not there because uh, I, uh, I, tend to, I tend to lose brain cells on tour despite uh, not drinking or uh, partaking any sort of uh, mind-altering substances. So, uh, again, if you uh, enjoyed the episode, or if you didn't, let me know. Uh, you can email me at harshtruthspodcast at gmail.com. Find me on Twitter, at Plague Mother, Instagram, at Plague Mother. Please rate, review, and subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Downcast, or any of your preferred podcast platforms. Hopefully here soon we're going to have some more uh, announcements concerning the podcast. Uh, there is still a Facebook page up. I, I deleted my personal Facebook, so I can still access the uh, the account for the uh, podcast, but I just don't check it because life outside of social media is wonderful. You can feel free to contact me there as well, and uh, hope this episode finds everyone well, and we'll catch you next time on Harsh Truths. Esoteric guy, so we don't need to get into the philosophical weeds. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, or, sure. we, or weed at all. Yeah, or weed at all. <laughs>